All right, good afternoon. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here today. On behalf of the Texas Tribune, I'm delighted to welcome you to the sixth annual Texas Tribune Festival and to Supreme Court Confidential. Uh, we're honored that joining us today are three members of the court. My name's George Hodge. I'm the editorial director of ALM Media, and I lead more than 100 journalists working for legal and business publications, including Texas Lawyer based in Dallas. Uh, before joining this company, I spent 11 years at the Houston Chronicle, um, so it's great to be back in, back in Texas. With us today, let me start at the far end, is Justice Eva Guzman, who has served as at three levels of the Texas judiciary. She was appointed to serve on the court in 2009 by Governor Perry and was elected to a full term in 2010 when she became the first Hispanic woman elected to statewide office in Texas. Next to her is Chief Justice Nathan Hecht. He's the 27th Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. He's been elected six times, first in 1988 as a justice, and most recently as 2014 as Chief Justice. He's the longest serving member of the court in Texas history. And next to me is Justice Don Willett, who was appointed to the court in August of 2005 and elected to a full term in 2006. He described himself in his Twitter handle as Supreme Court Justice, <coughs> Twitter Laureate of Texas, and former rodeo bull rider. Which comes in surprisingly handy on the court. You'd be, you'd be shocked. <laughs> okay, well, well, we'll talk about that for a bit. We're, we're delighted to have them all here. Today's session will run for about an hour. We'll include about 15 to 20 minutes of Q&A um, at, the, at the end. Um, you know, I want to note, I was, I was noticing as we came in, I was in a panel a few minutes ago with state lawmakers, and none of them had notes. They just talked off the top of their heads. That's the difference between lawmakers and jurists. You can see Justice <laughs> Will and Justice Guzman have extensive notes and, and files for ref reference here. So uh, difference in who we're, uh, who we're chatting with. I want to start a little bit by talking about the, uh, the kinds of cases that the court has tackled over the, over the years. Uh, Chief Justice Hecht, as the longest-serving <coughs> justice today, can you talk about how have things changed over the, over the years, and you know, how much time are you now spending deciphering what the legislature did in the last 48 hours of session? Yeah, uh, a lot, a lot. Uh, when I first got there, um, we had a lot more common law cases. So common law cases are judge-made law. The court takes a case, applies principles that have been announced in prior cases and precedent, and uh, uh, maybe <clears throat> extends them to new factual situations, modifies them, uh, decides whether they should remain the law, but it's all up to the court. Uh, these are all decisions that, that judges make <clears throat> and have for uh, years. We got that tradition from uh, England, uh, and that's uh, the way uh, the, the state courts in our country uh, operate. Um, but uh, more recently, uh, we've been involved in uh, statutory construction. So the legislature passes uh, a law, and uh, we have to look at it and see what it means and how it applies in particular circumstances. Uh, and this can be uh, very difficult. Uh, a lot of times uh, legislation is a compromise. Uh, if people are arguing about it's, they don't want it to be this way, they don't want it quite to be this way, and sometimes when the smoke clears and the compromising is done, you're not exactly sure what the words mean. Um, and um, 
the legislative process is very different. Uh, it's, you know, there's pressure, there's obviously a lot of politics involved. Uh, and so they're not always thinking when they enact the statute, uh, <clears throat> how's this gonna apply in very difficult circumstances? How are people gonna look at this? What are all the possible situations that can arise? Uh, so we get more and more of those cases. Um, <clears throat> I don't think we've ever stopped to count, but my sense of it was when I got to the court, uh, more than half of our cases were common law cases. Mm -hmm. Now, I wow. would say close to two-thirds are statutory interpretation cases. Um, and so <clears throat> there are a lot of ways uh, to uh, interpret writing statutes. Um, one way is to try to figure out what the words say. Uh, another way is to look at the history of the statute, what, what people said about it as it was going through the legislative process. Uh, another way is to look at the purpose of the statute. Another way is to look at the ends that it was trying to achieve, uh, what uh, prompted it in the first place, uh, all those kinds of things. <clears throat> and uh, courts across the country have argued uh, now for um, at least uh, 30 years or more uh, about what's, what's the most appropriate way uh, to do it. And our court thinks, um, like probably uh, most courts in the country now, uh, that you start with the text, you start with the words themselves, uh, because that's what the legislature passed, that's what they agreed on, <clears throat> that's what got the votes, uh, not what some legislator was thinking in his head or hoping or uh, some uh, lobbyist or person who was interested in the bill was trying to say, you know, boy, I sure hope it gets, comes out this way. Um, not always uh, the purpose or the, the uh, genesis of the legislation because, uh, again, things change, uh, things, bills are passed, uh, aimed at one kind of thing, and then, lo and behold, another situation arises. So, start with the text. Uh, try to um, uh, wring as much meaning out of it as possible, uh, which <laughs> often takes some wringing. Uh, and, uh, uh, but, but have a careful uh, exercise that you can explain to people. And, and uh, if, I, if, if I can say this, keep the court in its place and the legislature in its place. So it's their job to enact laws, uh, to decide what they think policy ought to be. It's our job when we're interpreting those statutes to carry it out and not to substitute uh, our views. So very different from the mm -hmm. common law cases. Justice Guzman, so I mean, is, are there things you would like to see in, in legislation or to understand? I mean, if you were giving advice to the legislature, not on what they should pass, but what they should put in it so that you understand what the heck they meant. Mm -hmm. I think that judges speak through, through their opinions, and quite often judges will use concurring or dissenting opinions to, to speak to the legislature and to encourage them to address more clearly a, a certain statute or to encourage them to, to take on the, the heavy policymaking work that they should. In the school finance case that I think you'll get to, I wrote a concurrence highlighting for the legislature the economically disadvantaged students because I wanted them to consider, and they would have, but I was adding my voice to that in a concurrence, 
And so I, I, I think that it's impossible for our legislature to consider every factual scenario that will come within the purview of any particular statute. But writing as plainly and as clearly as possible it should always be their goal, and I think it is. Just as well, talking about school, school finance, we can, we can pivot to that. That was probably the highest profile case last year. The one that uh, you know, declared in essence, I believe it was your opinion, that the funding regime is a mess, but it's constitutional. Right. Um, were you trying to send a message to the legislature? This was the seventh go round of school finance uh, to the court? Uh, it was the seventh case before the court in the past 30 or so years. Um, first of all, let me talk about, it's called Supreme Court Confidential, our panel. I'll give you some inside scoop on how authorship, who's going to write the opinion, how is that determined at the court? People are familiar with the U.S. Supreme Court where the senior member of the court, and if it's the chief, then the chief will select who's going to write the opinion. And that'll happen after argument. At our court, it is the opposite on both counts, both who decides and when. At our court, maybe a month or two before we have oral argument, um, Nadine, who's sort of our den mother at the court, <laughs> she'll write the names of each case set to be argued. She'll write one case on a three-by-five index card and another case on another card. She'll do nine of them. And then she'll fan them out like a magician, you know, playing a card trick. And beginning with the junior most member of the court, uh, you pick a card and you just sort of use the force. And <laughs> you pick a card, and for good or ill, that is your case. And some days the force is with you, and you're like, woohoo! And other, day, other days the force is not, and you're like, don't! And I drew the school finance case. Actually, I was traveling, I was in North Carolina the day the case was drawn, and a staff member on the court drew it for me, uh, which quickly got her off the Christmas card Are they list. Still <laughs> Um, you ask if we're trying to send a message. I mean, we ideally, ideally, we send a message with every case we issue. And I don't mean a godfather type message. Like, you know, there's no like horse head in the rotunda of the Capitol or anything like that. Um, but the message that I hope does come through, not only with that case, but every case before the court is, is this. Like we're, we're a court of law. We're a legal institution. We're not a political institution. We're not a cultural institution. Um, and I'm proud to be part of a court that I believe knows the difference. I mean, we're committed to behaving judicially by adjudicating and not, and not politically by legislating. Is our system flawed? Is it imperfect? Yes. Is it optimal? No. But as a legal matter, whether something is constitutional is not the same as a policy matter, whether it's imperfect or has room for improvement. So when previous courts threw out school finance, were they going too far? I mean, not for me to say. Thankfully, the last time it was before the court, I was brand new to the court in 05. And I had just come from the Attorney General's office, where I was the, the chief legal counsel to our then AG, Greg Abbott. 
So I was blissfully recused from the last <laughs> round before the court. So I wasn't there, but this, this guy next to me was there for pretty much all of them. He, all of he was them. elected in 88, joined the court January 1st of 89. So he's been there from the get-go and seen the entire conveyor belt from beginning to end. So just a sec, Chief Justice, so what, if you can talk about it, what changed in, in this case? What was different about this one than, than the times when the court tossed school finance? Is it a different <coughs> court or a different law? No, I, I don't think it has uh, much to do with the court. Um, <clears throat> it certainly doesn't have, have anything to do with politics. The, uh, the 1989 court was uh, six Democrats and three Republicans. Uh, <clears throat> and the decision was unanimous. Um, and it found that the funding mechanism was, um, did not meet the requirements of the Constitution. And <clears throat> picking up on what Justice Willett said, it's it very important for us in these cases to lay out what the Constitution says in a very plain way so that the public, the legislators, people that are reading this know this is not what uh, Heck thinks. <clears throat> this is not what a majority of the court thinks. This is what the people have said through their constitution, and here's why. Uh, and explain it as compellingly as we can to say, this, it's not up to us. Uh, it's only up to us to read the constitution and tell the legislature and the people this is what it means in these circumstances. Um, but the, the people uh, in 1876 uh, set the standards uh, in the uh, Constitution for what the what they wanted in a in a public school system. It was debated. It was heavily debated uh, back in the 19th century. A lot of people uh, didn't want public schools. Um, uh, we had just come through Reconstruction. Uh, people were very suspicious that the federal government would be would come back again, uh, and they would um, uh, try to take over education as they had before. <clears throat> and people were very uh, upset with that experience, and so they debated, do we want public education, how's it going to be paid for, uh, who's going to pick the teachers, you know, the whole nine yards. <clears throat> and they picked words uh, very carefully, they debated them over the course of months. Um, they said we want it to be efficient, uh, and so in 1989, <clears throat> um, the argument was this isn't efficient. Um, and the answer was basically, uh, throughout the state, when you have a thousand school districts, there are little pockets of money and pockets of kids, and they don't always match up. And that's not efficient. You don't have the resources where uh, the students are. Uh, and this time, uh, we looked once again. Uh, Justice Willett did a masterful job, went through the whole system, showed how, the, uh, how it was structured, uh, how it was operating, uh, and uh, we concluded that um, it met the constitutional standard. Not that we would do it that way, um, not that we think it's good enough, uh, it's not up to us, um, but that, it, that it, it met what the people required. Justice Guzman, <coughs> the, you know, the court's had its share of controversial rulings, but it, look, it seems in Texas the court hasn't gone to the war with the legislature and vice versa the way it has in other states. In, I believe, Kansas earlier this year, similar school issue, uh, the legislature wanted to suddenly make it easier to impeach justices. 
Why do you think we haven't had those issues here in, here in Texas? I think both bodies have, have a very clear understanding of what their role is. Uh, if you read the court's opinions, there, there is a lot of consistency in, in the philosophical approach that, that judges are not to make laws, are not supposed to substitute their judgment for that of the legislature. On occasion, when the court issues an opinion, interprets a statute in the way that the legislature doesn't approve of, they move quickly. And they changed the statute, and it happened, I guess, the last session we ruled maybe in, within months they had it it. corrected what we did. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so, so I think really it is a, a fundamental philosophical approach to how we do our jobs. And so you don't have the, either body invading uh, the purview of the other body. I think so. And I will note, I don't believe it happened even when, I mean, right now it's, Republican legislature, Republican court, right. but even when it was split, you didn't have those kinds of issues, right, Chief Justice? No, we didn't. Uh, you know, in the first um, school finance case, when we said it was unconstitutional, uh, I mean, we did, we did think, I mean, you couldn't decide the case without thinking, well, what, well, what are they going to say when they read this? Uh, are they going to say, well, that's what you say, and, uh, you know, we... Uh, we appropriate money, and we'll just cut your appropriation off. Or no, no t you know, the, the, the judiciary is famously the weakest branch uh, because we don't have the army and we don't have the checkbook. Uh, and uh, <coughs> so we're just, we've got black robes, and that's it. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and a pen. Yeah, and, and a, a pen. Twitter account. And a pen. <laughs> that's right. Um, but you hope that, um, as we all learned in civics, I hope, growing up, uh, the branches respect each other. They, they're competitive. They don't, uh, they, uh, <clears throat> there's some tension there. There's supposed to be tension there. But that when uh, the U.S. Supreme Court says in Brown versus Board of Education, this is what we're going to do, uh, you can depend on a president who does not agree with that decision to see that it's enforced in the states um, because that's what the executive is supposed to do when the court rules. And you can see, uh, I think, in the school of finance early on <coughs> um, that uh, the court said th this is the problem. We explained it uh, sufficiently that the legislature could see that this just wasn't what I thought or eight, eight other colleagues thought. This was what the people had said. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I, I doubt they liked it a lot, uh, but uh, they went about trying to fix the problems in a business-like way. And I think, too, I think, I think <laughs> Texas is just fundamentally different than Kansas or, or some other states. <laughs> Every Texas I hear laughter from the mosh pit in the front <laughs> row. Um, now, I think officials in all three branches of government in Texas for a long time I think they've historically sort of recognized that we are sort of collectively, we're collectively engaged in this really, this common enterprise, this really noble enterprise. And I think we all, for all of our differences, have really an abiding love for Texas. And, and there's no doubt about it, people have varied beliefs and are passionate about those varied beliefs, but, but it seems that in Texas we, across branches, kind of recognize that for all of those kind of hard-fought differences. Um, you know, we all serve Texas with goodwill and, and with full hearts, I think. I want to talk a little bit about 
the, the structure of the, of, of the court. You know, a decade ago, you were drowning in cases. Um, there were, you know, dozens of cases held over from term to term. Um, that backlog's now been cleared. Does that reflect there's, one, that there's less work to do? And two, um, just as well, in a dissent, I think a few years ago, you know, the issue has come up. Texas and Oklahoma are the only states that have separate <clears throat> Supreme Courts and Courts of Criminal Appeals. Right. Um, is it time to combine them in part because you all seem to be pretty efficient at this point? I mean, I have, I have long been a proponent of high court merger. Um, I think if we had a blank sheet of paper and if we were asked, you know, from scratch to design a judicial structure for the 21st century, I don't think many people, if anybody, would design the current sort of Rube Goldberg designed, <laughs> really abstruse, convoluted um, system, so-called, that we have today. Not just at the high court level, but it really permeates. It's probably even most acute at the trial court level with overlapping jurisdictions, and it's really sort of a mess. But it's largely the product of historical kind of happenstance, kind of Band-Aid on top of Band-Aid, on top of Post-it note, on top of paperclip, and it's just kind of what we have. And I think a lot of lawyers are kind of hardwired to resist kind of change, even though, again, if we were starting afresh, I think few people would design what we have. Um, from 01 to 05, 2001-2005, there were 10 new members of my core. 10 new people left and and came on board. That revolving door was spinning really rapidly. And people would leave for a variety of reasons. They would become a federal judge, or they would retire, or they'd lose an election, or they'd go into private law practice, because maybe, you know, like me, they had young children who stubbornly insist on being fed and clothed and educated. <laughs> the nerve. The nerve. Um, so we had enormous turnover. And I was number 10 of those 10, August 24th of 05. And then that revolving door came to a screeching halt. But when I got to the court, because I think largely a byproduct of that rapid turnover, there was an enormous backlog at the court. The court was carrying over you know, four and five dozen cases from one term to the next, and sometimes to the next. And thankfully, um, you know, I got there in August of 05, and nobody left for over four years. And the court entered a period of relative calm and, and stability with no turnover. And the court was able to kind of gradually, methodically um, chip away at that backlog. And former Chief Jefferson and Chief Justice Heck deserve enormous kind of bottomless credit uh, for keeping us on task and for steadily chipping away. So two years ago, June of 2014, 2015 mm -hmm. was the first time in recorded history where we had kind of cleared our docket. We decided every argued case in the same term, um, which is what the U.S. Supreme Court routinely does. It was the first time we'd done it in as far as anybody knows. Right. And we did it again for the second time back to back this year. And I think as a court, we're sort of institutionally committed to kind of keeping our nose to the grindstone and, and cranking out opinions and clearing our docket by the end of our term. Yep. And I think that the commitment that each justice on the court has made to getting the cases written and decided by the end of the term is key to the success that we've had. It takes commitment from all, all nine justices. I spent 
almost 10 years on an intermediate court of appeals. So I've actually decided thousands of criminal cases and thousands of civil cases. And, and I do think bringing experience to the court also makes a difference if you arrive on day one ready to write those judicial opinions and with some understanding of the dynamic in a court of appeals, in, in a Supreme Court, it's very different. I've also been a trial court judge, and that's your fiefdom. <laughs> you decide. And, and you get to a, a nine-member body, particularly the Supreme Court, uh, you've got to figure out very quickly how to get four other votes. And Justice Willett mentioned earlier, we get our opinion assignments randomly. That is true. But if you can't hang on to that blue card, <laughs> then you're not going to write the opinion. And what I mean by that is, yes, it's assigned to you in the first instance, but you have to come to the conference table prepared to, to articulate a framework and a structure for that opinion that at least four other people want to buy into, and hopefully eight other people. So I think it's commitment, and I think it's the experience level. Everybody on the court now has experience handling you know, the types of cases that come before the Supreme Court. Just to put it in perspective, another thing to put it in perspective, <clears throat> over the years, the U.S. Supreme Court has gotten a new justice about every other year. Uh, over the years, our court has gotten a new justice about every year. But in the first part of the last decade, we were getting more than two every year. So four times the turnover of the U.S. Supreme Court, twice our historic turnover. And it, it was just, uh, uh, it, it uh, threw us off our pace. Chief Justice and Justice Guzman, how do you feel about the issue of, of combining the, the Court of Criminal Appeals and, appeals and, the, uh, and the Supreme Court? Justice Willett's laughing, so I'm guessing there's This will not be a unanimous decision. Um, so. I, uh, so as I mentioned, I worked on the 14th Court of Appeals in Houston. It shares jurisdiction with the uh, first Court of Appeals in Houston. So you've got 18 judges deciding cases for the same uh, group of lawyers, the same jurisdiction, and sometimes they decide them differently. So if you're in Houston, you don't know whether you should follow the first or the 14th in your next lawsuit, because you don't know where the appeal will land. On the Supreme Court, it's a bit different, uh, obviously. As I've said, I, I think that I would like our citizens to engage in a dialogue about the efficiencies that would result from combining the courts. But if I'm on death row, do I want a judge who's never picked up a criminal case? Or do I want a judge who has spent his or her life devoted to evaluating constitutional issues in the context of, of criminal justice matters? Like I said, I've ruled on thousands of criminal cases. I could easily. Uh, handle that docket if it came my way, but if I was the citizen on death row, I'm not sure. And that's why I think that decision has to be made by our citizens through a lot of dialogue uh, and so that they understand what they're getting, the benefits of having a bifurcated system and then, and then the down potential uh, downfalls. But would you save some money? Yes, absolutely. Chief Justice. Uh, I've always been for combining them. Uh, they're, they're separate through an accident of history. The legislature was just trying to manage the caseload. Uh, they were shifting jurisdiction between courts, just trying to get everybody caught up. It was very difficult. They picked this way of doing it. Um, but the thing that, uh, I, that is most important to me is that um, 
it, uh, there is a tendency uh, for specialized courts to get ingrown. Um, the judges uh, are the same people. The lawyers, uh, in, particularly in criminal cases, the defense bar is pretty small, and the prosecutors are work for the government. Um, and there just tends to be some, uh, <clears throat> you just kind of get in a groove a little bit. I think it's true of tax cases, true of family cases, it's true of patent cases. Uh, there just develops a kind of a, a feeling of this is the way it's done that uh, somebody should shake up every once in a while. Um, and uh, I have the highest regard for the Court of Criminal Appeals. They just celebrated their 125th anniversary on Thursday. Um, their two, the two former presiding judges were both there. Judge Onion's 91 years old, uh, a great, still a great judge with a great mind. Uh, but um, all in all, I would combine them. I want to talk a little bit about or changing role of, of being a, a justice, particularly in a social media world. Uh, justice Willett, as I noted, is the tweeter laureate and has some like 21,000 tweets. Is that, I think I, I have that. Yeah, uh, more than that. No, no, number of tweets is probably about right. Followers is just under 60,000, I think. Um, you all use social media to a different, uh, diff different extent. So I uh, yeah. just would like you to this talk and this. Yeah, there's that. that, that, that. <laughs> Which is why I'm going to start it with Justice Guzman and 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 talk about. Um, you seem to use it more as a, you know community building um, tool. I, I, if I'm reading it right, when I look at your uh, your your, tw your Twitter account. Mm -hmm. You want to talk about how you use it and where you see you know, pitfalls, concerns in using social media as a justice? Yeah, I have a Twitter account at Justice Gizmon and a Facebook account. And I want to start with a quote from Justice, the late Justice Antonin Scalia. It's kind of funny. A lot of what he said was interesting. Um, he said, I don't know why anyone would like to be friended on the network. I mean, what kind of a narcissistic society is it that people want to put it out there? This is my life, and this is what I did yesterday. Did yesterday. I mean, good grief. <laughs> so, um, oh, we have some agreement with Justice Scalia. I, I am somewhere in between Justice Scalia's view, and, and, the, and so then I'll move on to what the American Bar Association have said. And, and they acknowledge that judges are held to a higher standard and that even on social media, we, we are constrained by codes of judicial conduct and, and other rules. But they have sanctioned the use of social media because it helps the public not perceive the judiciary as out of touch with, the broad, you know, with, with society uh, at broad. Um, and when you're looking at social media, it's not just your actions, what I post. It is the appearance of those actions. What does my post convey to the public, and how does that help build their trust in an independent and fair judiciary? And so I do think the other day, this is like ridiculous, but the other day I posted a picture of carne guisada. That would be, how many people know what that is? Like beast? Yeah. So I said, 
I was on a conference call, and while I was on the phone, I was cooking carne guisada. Well, it gets almost 300 likes. That's absurd, <laughs> a picture of carne guisada. So then, of course, I took it down because it's just silly. So, you know, every now and then I try to engage. Why did you take it down? Yeah, why did you I'm take it down? Because it's absurd that people are liking carne guisada. It was like literally a picture of food. Um, so... Uh, uh, Justice no. Willow would have nothing to post that. <laughs> he doesn't post, he's never posted Carnegie's life. But um, anyway, I do think that lawyer, and so here's, it'll lead into what I want to conclude with, the, the ethical problems. I do think, and this has been addressed in many states, not in Texas, when lawyers that have cases before you friend you, can you accept that friend request? Should you unfriend every lawyer who has a case before you? Some states have come down on, no, you can't be friends with lawyers, and no, you can't accept their friend's request if they practice in front of you. Um, and so I think that there are a lot of questions that remain to be answered on the ethical implications of judges and social media. We've not addressed them in Texas, though we've had a few high-profile cases involving judges. Um, I think you should never post about your DACA, and that's just my view. Uh, so I think that's the problem. There are a lot of unanswered questions, and it does have ethical implications. And more importantly than any of that, what does the public think about what we're doing? Chief Justice, what's your view on social media? And also to <laughs> Justice Guzman's question, is it the Supreme Court? Whose job is it to say these are the standards in, in Texas? Is it you all to come up with a consensus on that? Uh, when I was, uh, I, I was telling my law clerks the other day, when I was growing up, that uh, sometimes my brother and I got to stay up uh, until the t TV station signed off. And the law clerk said, what do you mean signed off? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, TV stations used to sign off. Uh, they never heard of such a thing. So. Um, I'm behind the curve on this, and I'm proudly there. Proudly? Proudly. Uh, I, Justice Guzman uh, alluded to this, but uh, these days, it's a, we have to run for office. Uh, I think most judges don't like that. Uh, they think it um, um, is inconsistent with trying to be uh, a fair arbiter. Uh, but that's what the people have chosen, so that's what we have to do. Uh, and um, it's indispensable as, as far as campaigning. On, um, so I have a Facebook account, I'm told. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't have any idea what's on it, but, uh, uh, and, but um, on the second part, uh, the court would make the rules. Um, so um, we, uh, there is a code of judicial conduct uh, in Texas, as there is in all 50 states. And it says what judges can and can't do, um, all kinds of things. Um, and this would be the subject of a rule in the canons. There isn't one. Uh, there are some other general rules uh, that would apply, which are you can't show favoritism, uh, you can't, uh, you can't com comment adversely on uh, things like race and gender and all sorts of things. Um, but uh, we would make the rules and we have it here. Justice Watt? Okay, I'm, <laughs> I'm probably the most, I guess, avid, you know, prolific kind of social media using judge in the country. In history. In, <laughs> in the history of the In galactic country. history. Yeah. Which I joke is kind of like being the tallest, 
Munchkin and Oz, right? <laughs> like the most popular kid in chess club, right? <laughs> so the bar is not exactly sky high. Um, but as the chief mentioned, we have to run for office in a state of 27 million people. We have to hopscotch across 254 counties and a couple of time zones. And in this day and age, more and more people consume information. I'm sure the overwhelming bulk of you consume information increasingly online, especially, especially maybe political information. When I first ran in 06, you know, 10 years ago, social media existed. It was kind of in its infancy, and I didn't do anything with it. But when I ran in 2012 for re-election, it was ubiquitous. It was everywhere. And so many people go to social media to, uh, for civic education to learn about candidates. And if you're an obscure judge whose name ID hovers between you know, slim and none, um, I view it as sort of political malpractice not to engage people smartly and carefully and judiciously through social media, especially if you're running in a contested primary, which I've had two of, you're talking to a really narrow sliver of the population. But if you can win the hearts and minds of a few key kind of influencers and opinion leaders, um, things ricochet very fruitfully and exponentially online. It is a low cost but high voltage way to remove distance, to build awareness and, and, and raise visibility. Um, as Justice Guzman mentioned, the ABA came out a couple years ago with an ethics opinion, opinion, kind of recognizing, um, hey, this is a, a new age, and a lot of judges have to run for re-election and have to communicate with voters. And they said they gave a green light you know, to judges to utilize smartly social media, but with the caution that as with any other mode of communication, whether you've got a microphone or you're on a soapbox or whatever you're doing, Judges must always be judicious. And whether you're writing a 140 footnote opinion for the court or a 140 character tweet on your iPhone, um, you've got to navigate the ethical boundaries, but treat it just like any other mode of communication. So cardinal rules, I don't, I don't tweet about cases that are disputed legal issues that could land on my court's doorstep. Um, I don't throw kind of serrated, kind of partisan sharp elbows, I keep it kind of light, hopefully, and kind of above the fray, hopefully. Um, but I view it as really a, a key political communications tool, but also kind of a civic education tool. I want to demystify the court. I want to humanize the court, the judicial branch. And I think people find it astonishing that a sort of fuddy-duddy kind of judge can kind of step out from behind the bench and come across as halfway authentic halfway real, halfway human, halfway engaging. And legal ethicists are kind of playing catch up. There's a, a growing number of kind of legal case books on professional responsibility and judges and the use of social media. I'm currently working on what I hope will be kind of the authoritative, definitive kind of law review piece on the proper judicial use of social media, giving guidance to judges, to judicial candidates, to judicial <laughs> ethics officials around the, around the country. Um, thankfully, thankfully, the head of our Judicial Conduct Commission um, sort of uses me as an example in her presentations, not thankfully as a cautionary tale, not don't let this happen to you, but as an example of somebody who can 
kind of have a little bit of personality and come across um, as authentic and, and real, kind of demystify and humanize, but while sort of threading the needle on what's appropriate. Now, you, you used Twitter to poke some gentle fun at Donald Trump, among others, a few, a few, few times. You mentioned malpractice. It would be journalistic malpractice if I didn't ask this question. <laughs> Donald Trump put you on his, uh, one of his short lists. He's had a couple now of people he would consider for the U.S. Supreme Court. So it's the day after the election. President-elect Trump calls you and says, Justice Willett, I'd like to nominate you to the Supreme Court. What do you say? Couldn't I be like the U.S. Twitter laureate or something instead? Um, it's hard to really entertain even kind of the premise of the question. Um, There's been a lot in this election that it's been hard and to not because I'm, And not because I'm predicting who I think will win or not win, but it's like, it's like being asked, it's kind of too surreal to contemplate. You, it's like asking me, hey, when you win the Powerball tonight, are you going to take the lump sum payout or the annuity over time? And the odds of it happening are between sort of infinitesimal and, and zero. And even assuming Mr. Trump were to win, the odds of it happening are close to nil. And I think, you know, a thousand stars have to align, and nine, 999 of them are beyond your control. It is a lightning strike moment. Um, but it is kind of funny how I got the news of the original uh, shortlist. Um, it happened at the worst possible time and place. So when I woke up that morning, the most exciting thing on my calendar was having lunch at the La Barbecue food trailer in East Austin, right? Can I get an amen on that? Um, so after that, I was going to Governor Abbott's book signing, the kickoff to his book tour, which was downtown in a big auditorium. And I got there a little late, and I was going to kind of hang out in the back and kind of lurk in the background along the back wall. And some staff said, hey, Judge, I think there's one more chair over here on the back row. Why don't you scoot on over and take that chair? And I did. I kind of scooted by some people. Governor Abbott kind of saw me kind of scooting and paused and said really generous things, nice things. Nobody knew the news yet. Um, and there was no kind of heads up um, to me at all. So everybody's oblivious. And so Governor Abbott kind of said nice things as I'm kind of scooting down the row. I sit down, and about that time, my phone begins going just absolutely berserk in my pocket. Um, so I kind of fish it out, and I kind of look at my home screen, and it sort of lit up like a, like a Las Vegas slot machine. <laughs> and I'm sort of scrolling through, and I can kind of piece together kind of fragment by fragment what has happened. And I've got about 30 seconds to process it. And then I hear the governor in the background sort of wrapping up, and I hear people applauding at the conclusion of his remarks. And then I look up from my chair, and again, I got the news like 30, 45 seconds before. And I look up to kind of find myself surrounded by the Capitol Press Corps, <laughs> who were all there because of Governor Abbott's book signing. This is the kickoff to his book tour. And he had just sort of earlier noted I was there, and he's right there. So I looked up, and there were some people were taking iPhone video with their cameras, voice recorders, still cameras, and I was dumbstruck. I was sort of flustered 
And I was sort of this judge in the headlights, really. And I think the press corps, most of whom I know and have a, a good relationship with, they were all just sort of amused at how sort of thunderstruck I was. And I muttered something about, I really need to exercise some judicial restraint right now. And I skedaddled and left. But it was an out-of-body experience. It was, but I, I got 10,000 new Twitter followers that day. Um, but it was an otherworldly experience. But my wife has kept me pretty grounded. Um, a few weeks ago, Hillary Clinton's campaign manager was on one of the Sunday morning talk shows. And I watched it, and then I texted my wife. I said, hey, Hillary Clinton's campaign manager just called me a, a right-wing extremist. And she texted back, well, at least you didn't mention your Nickelback tattoo. And I'm like, ooh, like, savage reply. Have you watched your tweets since then? Have you changed anything? Well, I always posted? sort of, with varying success, kind of aim for carefulness and diligently... I hope, kind of self-censor, but, but you're right, all, all the earlier, my earlier mentions of Mr. Trump were meant to be just kind of glib and jovial with, you know, tongue planted firmly Like a gremlin in, in the airplane. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, that time, yeah, I, I know which one you're talking about. Uh, but they were meant to be kind of jovial and jocular and more kind of observational than kind of taking a, you know, a hard political stand. We could keep going, but I wanted to make sure we had time for questions. If you could raise your hand if you have questions, we'll get some, uh, if you'll wait for, for the microphones to come around, would you start with uh, this gentleman over, over here, sir? The, the whole country uh, pays a lot of attention to the U.S. Supreme Court, less so the Texas Supreme Court. Um, one of the characteristics of the U.S. Supreme Court is the ideological divide on the court. And for coming up on 20 years now, uh, the Texas Supreme Court has been all Republicans. And so my question is, do you think that there's a danger that there's a lack of ideological uh, uh, diversity on the court? And if there is, uh, is there something that you can do about that? How do you guard against having that be a, a problem? I know you're doing statutory interpretation, but that is certainly subject to yeah. partisan interpretation, that sort okay. of thing. Um, now, we certainly do not have the as wide of an ideological spectrum as you see on the U.S. Supreme Court. We're not quite, we don't have the sort of Ginsburg to Thomas divide. Uh, we are more, I guess, sort of Kennedy-ish to Thomas, I guess. Uh, but there's a lot of room for disagreement in that span. I did a CLE a couple years ago where I looked at every decision my court had issued, kind of from 01, kind of after I joined the court in 05 until roughly 2010. So a five-year window when there was no turnover, absolute stability. And over that period, my court was unanimous roughly half the time, which sounds like a lot, but you look at the US Supreme Court with their enormous philosophical differences, and at least half of theirs are unanimous. So it's not really a surprise. But what really did um, catch me off guard was of the half that weren't unanimous, what was kind of the vote split? And were there any sort of discernible trends or patterns or alignments on our court? And I discovered that if a case wasn't unanimous, the most common vote split on my court was 5-4. We had more 5-4 than 6-3, more 5-4 than 7-2, more 5-4 than 8-1. 
And I overlaid U.S. Supreme Court data on top of that because they had no turnover either. So looking at their decisions over that same window, 70% of their 5-4 decisions over that time were one of two predictable patterns. So you had these four and these four with Justice Kennedy kind of suspended somewhat equidistant between the two. He was the decider, deciding what the law meant from coast to coast. And, but on my court, there was no Kennedy-esque kind of swing justice. It was very case-specific. There were no discernible kind of patterns or so-and-so aligns with so-and-so you know, overwhelmingly. Um, so there, there was enormous kind of variety in terms of trends and alignments. But I think on our court, um, yeah, we're all Republican, and I think people see that and they, and they immediately sort of assume that we sort of march around in ideological lockstep, that we're reflexively this way or overwhelmingly that way. And we disagree a lot. And people aren't bashful about expressing kind of sharp disagreement around the table. And things get pretty spirited and pretty feisty. I could just follow up with Justice Guzman on that. You, you've got the ideological diversity, but just in terms of gender and ethnic diversity, does it feel kind of lonely? There sometimes? <laughs> I have lots of friends on the court right here. <laughs> no, it, I really, I, I think that what, what people are looking for in their judges are judges that are fair, that are independent, that are hardworking. And I do think that, that in order to, to operate in an equitable society, we, we do have to have everyone's voices heard. And, and the way that translates to me in a judicial context is that no matter what color you are, ethnicity, you can count on those judges on that court to be fair, to be independent, to follow the law, to understand your arguments. And so I'm not so much looking for um, ethnicity as I am to have our voices heard by judges who are doing their job. And when you do, then I think the courts serve the public well. That being said, I, do, I am very proud to, to be the first Latina of Mexican heritage to serve on the court. Um, it's, it's giving me a platform for going out around the state and really making a difference in, in the lives of young people. And uh, talking about Facebook, I got a note from a young lady. I'd spoken to a group, and it's just a beautiful note. I posted it on my public Facebook page because I think it speaks to the impact that, that you might have on people when you are a person of color. It doesn't impact how we dispense justice. Questions? Oh, there's a question here. Wait, could you wait for the microphone? Sorry, we're recording it, so we wanted really to get the mic. Anyway, my son is a 1L at Duke, and he would love to um, clerk for the Supreme Court, because I think everyone would love to do that. But yeah, I know, I hear laughter. He's a really good student. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he'll actually be a JAG lawyer to mm -hmm. serve his country, and then he'll figure out what he's going to do. But when my, he has gone into law school with the ambition to end up being a judge. And okay, you can laugh again on the Supreme Court because he loves, he loved, he actually cried when Scalia died. He cried, right? He's like, I've, I've never understood why people get upset, but now I'm upset. Did you guys go to law school 
with the idea that you're going to be lawyers like Atticus Finch or you are going to be judges? And what is good to like, do you, to plot that out initially? What is it for if that's your ambition? Uh, I didn't go to college thinking I was going to be a lawyer or a judge. Um, I, uh, I thought I was going to be an engineer, uh, <coughs> but... Uh, that explains a lot. It, uh, <laughs> it turned out uh, uh, I liked math more than it liked me, so uh, <laughs> I had to look, cast about for something else and immediately uh, decided I would uh, uh, go to law school. Uh, and then I clerked for a judge right after I got out of law school, and uh, it was such a wonderful experience, I thought then, if I ever get a chance, I'd like to be a judge. Um, so uh, good for him. Uh, I, th I think uh, the, uh, there are all kinds of different backgrounds that can um, uh, prepare you for uh, being a good lawyer and a judge. Uh, but the, the two that are probably most important is some sort of uh, ability to uh, analyze things abstractly. And so people always say, well, isn't political science or something like that a good background? It is. It can be. But uh, what you really want is somebody who has to think about abstract ideas and principles and rules and analyze and think through them. That's kind of what uh, lawyers and judges do. And then uh, uh, the ability to write. And, so, uh, and the only way you uh, develop that is to do a lot of it. And we don't do much of it anymore because... Uh, two dadgum many of us are tweeting, uh, <laughs> but, but I digress. Uh, uh, but uh, you, you need to be a good writer, um, and, uh, and then, uh, um, you know, he, he should go for it. I'm happy to visit with you or with him. I'm a Duke Law grad, and I'm, I'd, be, I'd be happy to visit with you or with him. And I was in the JAG Corps, so... Uh, uh, and uh, I had a law clerk last year who's now in Navy JAG, so that's uh, a wonderful, wonderful Alpha job. Sure. There's a question over here. We'll bring the microphone around. Yes, ma'am. Hello, Justices. Thank you for being here. I am a former attorney and professor at Texas Wesleyan University. We're here with Hatton Sumner Scholars. And mm. up in the North Texas area, our students aren't quite as lucky sometimes as to go to Duke. And we have many of them now who are at the University of North Texas School of Law. And uh, knowing recently that they're having some issues uh, getting uh, approval from the ABA, but a new experiment in legal education, affordable legal education, which is certainly a question. Do you all favor allowing the students who graduate as three L's in May to take the bar exam? if the ABA does not give provisional accreditation? Well, I've already said I do. Um, the, um, uh, I think um, uh, UNT is doing a great job up there. I think uh, this, is a, uh, this is an opportunity uh, to look at a different kind of legal education. It's less than half the cost of a state school um, and another, uh, the other state schools. Um, and uh, Judge Ferguson up there is doing a marvelous job, and I just, uh, we, we have in this country uh, a great need for lawyers and legal advice. It's a complicated world. People uh, need lawyers all the time, uh, but they, they think they can't afford them. 
uh, and to a large extent, they're right. So we have this huge demand and a huge supply because we've got lawyers that are looking for work, and we can't seem to get them together because the market uh, has not made it has not made that possible. So I hope uh, um, the uh, Dallas Law School does well. Um, the the court has been asked twice in history. Uh, there, there was a third time that really wasn't that serious, but two serious times, one with Texas Wesleyan. Um, and we uh, waived the requirement that the uh, kids graduate from a accredited law school so they could take the bar. Uh, and then um, Texas Wesleyan, I think it was the Dallas Law School then, but um, it became accredited. Uh, and then um, the other time was uh, the Ronaldo Garza School in the Valley. Uh, and we let them, uh, we weighed the requirement for them, I think, for two years uh, until it became apparent that they just weren't going to make it. Uh, so the precedent is to uh, waive the requirement. Justice Guzman, do you agree? I have stated publicly that I agree mm -hmm. with the Chief Justice's uh, view. Justice Willett? Same. Same thing? Right. I think we have time for one more question, if there is one. Janet. Janet. Uh, why hasn't the court developed a social media policy for judges, and do most states have one? No, most states don't. Um, there, uh, some states have looked at it. I think the reason, uh, my reason, um, is that uh, it's new enough that it's, uh, you kind of want it to play out a little bit before you start saying this and this and this, start making hard rules. For example, the first crack out of the box, uh, there was a uh, real hue and cry that you couldn't be liked on Facebook. A judge couldn't be liked by lawyers. I think as time has passed, you get to thinking, you know, who cares really? I mean, it's just a word that <laughs> Facebook picks, so what? Um, but maybe it matters, you know, but it's kind of hard to know what the uh, parameters ought to be uh, until uh, you have a little more experience with it. The bad part of that is we have had some um, disciplinary cases, not, not the court, but the Judicial Conduct Commission uh, involving uh, Facebook. But uh, the, most of those are because the judge uh, was determined to be commenting on, case, on pending cases. Uh, and uh, whether that's right or wrong, uh, it, uh, as Justice Willett said, that's pretty out there. I mean, you just can't talk about it pending cases. Um, so I think when we get a better feel for how this works, uh, then we'll do some rules. All right. Well, I'd like to thank Chief Justice Heck, Justice Willett, and Justice Guzman for a terrific panel. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you very much.